0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Anthology of Horror. I'm your host, Spring-Heeled Jack, and today I'm going to switch it up a little bit from what I normally do, or what I've been on a kick doing, and that's true crime. Today I'm going to bring you... Since summer's already here, I'm going to bring you a spooky travel guide to California. Weird, iconic, cultish places throughout the state that I've seen or found just stupid shit about online... So they're either legitimately cool historical places or just stupid dog shit that fucking people have made uh, a spectacle out of. So there are certain places throughout California that have attained near legendary status. Some sure you, you know. I'm sure you know a few of them. Even though some of them may be no more than a parched canyon or a rocky creek, many of these stories have grown out of these humble landmarks And uh, some of them are the stuff of nightmares. But are they tales that are merely the product of people's overactive imaginations? Or is there more to it than that? It's been said that most legends have some basis in fact. Today's bizarre news story lives on in our collective memory, becoming tomorrow's local legend. In other instances, it's unclear how a story came to be, but it has persisted for decades or even centuries. Why do these stories continue to be told? One answer might be that whether they admit it or not, most people want to believe that even in our technologically governed society, there are still places of mystery and wonder out there. Places that science can't explain. On the other hand, some people just love bullshitting you. Knowing that the frightening, or funny, uh, funny local legend set in a familiar location adds to the thrill of the bullshit i'm guilty of that we've gathered a variety of these tales those that reveal who we are as a culture in california and what we find most fascinating and what really scares the pants off of us and more specifically off of me did you know that there was a curse of Griff- griffith park until 1896 when griffith jenkins Griffith, bequeathed 3,000 acres of what is now the Hollywood Hills to the city of Los Angeles for use as a public park, the area was a trail to blood and bad luck for anybody who owned it. In 1863, most of the land was owned by a wealthy rancher named Don Antonio Feliz. Feliz's spread covered almost 8,000 acres. Don Antonio never married and lived on his huge tracts of land with his niece, Donna Petronia, and a maid named Soledad. When Feliz laid delirious with smallpox later that year, Donna Petronia was sent away so she wouldn't contract the fatal disease. And Don Feliz was soon visited by a neighbor, Don Antonio Colonel, and his lawyer, Don Inokonate, or something to that effect, to discuss Don Feliz's will. Uh, They weren't all named Don. It was a title like like The Godfather. The title that they wanted so that other people would think they were important, but in rare cases, they weren't. They were actually important. Most of the time, they fucking weren't. Don Feliz was said to agree to the final draft of the will, but another version of events claimed he was nodding in agreement because someone had fastened a stick to the back of his head and was forcing him to nod. To no one's surprise, Don Colonel got the ranch, Soledad made out with a few sticks of furniture, and Don Petronia got nothing. The fact... That she was also blind probably made her a little bitter. The 17-year-old Donna Patronia reportedly swore out a curse on Don Colonel. It was melodramatic and lengthy and translated by 19th century California historian Horace Bell. Your falsity shall be your ruin. The substance of the Felice family shall be your curse. The lawyer that assisted you in your infamy and judge shall fall beneath the same curse. The one shall die an untimely death the other in blood and violence she rants on for a little while longer and then says uh, blight shall fall upon the face of the terrestrial paradise the cattle shall no longer fatten but sicken on its pastures the fields shall no longer respond to the toil of the tiller the grand oak shall wither and die the wrath of heaven and the vengeance of hell shall fall upon thee and onto this place and you will know that my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee." Okay, that last part wasn't part of it, but fuck it. Donna Petronia might have been blind, but she f- saw the future like a prognosticator. Don Colonel outlasted many in his family, watching while they all died of disease or miscellaneous bullshit. When he died, his widow n- remarried, only to have her new husband try to divorce her and steal her land. But the litigation lawyers took almost all that was left. The next owner, Leon, aka Lucky Baldwin, tried to run a dairy on the star-crossed land, but businesses failed, and he was swallowed up by mortgage companies after three occurrences uh, of failed or of natural disasters that were eerily close to uh, what Donna Petronia had uh, prognosticated. So not so lucky, Baldwin sold the land to Griffith, J. Griffith, a Welshman, who made a killing in gold mine speculation. He speculated on gold mines. He donated the park to Los Angeles, the city, and after a few years later, Griffith was convicted of trying to kill his wife and spent several years in San Quentin. The legend of the curse has long given rise to the ghost stories in the park that bears Griffith's name. Ranch hands working the property in the late 19th century said that they had seen Don Colonel howling down the valley toward what are now uh, the mun- municipal golf course and the LA Zoo. The figure is reported to make appearances at B Rock, which is a granite monolith towering over the east side of the park. The curse seemed to abate once the city of Los Angeles took possession of the land, and perhaps the only dangers that remain for the weekend hiker are things like bodies dumped onto the fire roads or mountain lions. Um, allegedly there are six foot rattlesnakes uh, For good reason The park is closed at night So if the ghosts who stalk the old trails of Griffith Park Put its appearance only after sunset They should walk in relative peace Until the land inevitably changes hands Yet again Spooky Kind of That whole area is a shithole though So I don't have to worry about that one Not my favorite spot in the world This next one is uh, another relative shithole in uh, an interesting part of Southern California. It's called Mount Rubidoux. I believe I went to a concert at the top of this that was raided. memory serves, this is where it was. I went to a punk concert that was uh, thrown at a public park once. And it was at the top of this hill, so you had to hike all the way up to the top of this, uh, not really impressive hill, but still a fucking hill. And then we got to the top, there was a stage set up, and, uh, pretty kick-ass bands were playing. But as soon as it got dark, because, you know, California parks close after dark, a fucking helicopter, it was like, uh, it was like something out of a movie, man. It just, it was level with the hilltop. And they were telling everyone to disperse. It was fucking adorable. And then we did. And that was less adorable. But this is that place. And this peaceful park near downtown Riverside is surrounded by a number of weird fucking stories, like that one. Judging by all the dog walkers and trail runners who regularly show up around the area, most people are either unaware or don't give a fuck about the darker side of the legendary, they call it a mountain, I call it a hill. Uh, Once called... Papa Papa, by the Luiseño Indians, Mount Robidoux owes most of its near-pristine existence to the care and work of local millionaire Frank A. Miller. Miller owned the Mission Inn in Riverside, and until the stock market crash of 1929, he prospered with the influx of Midwestern tourists who made his place a winter destination. After Miller kicked the bucket, the inn went into a long decline. At the end... His grandson donated the land to the city in 1956. The Miller name is all over the park in engravings and panels. Near the top of the fire road is a medieval-looking structure called the Peace Tower, built in 1925. It looks out of place in the land of cactus, but adds to the foreboding atmosphere that kind of looms around the place. At the base of the tower is a room that looks like a mini-dungeon complete with an iron gate. This is definitely where that concert was. At the peak of the mountain, above the amphitheater used for an annual Easter sunrise service, is a brooding Christian cross that replaced the original brown, rough-hewn model that was torn down in 63. Uh, graffiti covers some of the rocks in the area because it's fucking Riverside. and The cross is strangely white and pristine. Rumors exist of a tunnel from somewhere on the mountain leading directly to the mission end used by Miller's associates for during the Prohibition. Teenagers and others prone to wild tales still search for the elusive subterranean passage with no luck so far, but the legend refuses to die. Near the crest of the north end of the peak are remnants of graceful, though defaced, paintings of a horse fading to obscurity on a flat rock. Since it looks like something out of a Lascaux cave, some tourists have insisted that it was made by some ancient Indian, but there's no record of it before the mid-20th century, so it was probably made by some crafty fucking artist Among the most enduring legends of Mount Rubidor Are the stories of furtive attack midgets Locals reportedly tell of small stones Raining down on them during solitary walks Also described are small piles of rocks Left on the trail Usually in groups of three And even occasional sightings Of the diminutive demons On the flip side of the spirit tales Are the large shadowy figures That have been reported walking near the peaks Late at night That could have been me Resembling the watchers of the Central Coast Rages or the equally mysterious robed form said to wander the slopes of Mount Shasta. I think those might just be robed hippies on Mount Shasta. The silent hooded spirits seem to be replaying some ancient ceremony along Mount Rubidoux's windswept peaks. I don't know about that one. Riverside always seems to be desperate for attention. If you ask me. Sorry if I have any listeners from Riverside. I think I have two. If you've ever found yourself deking at your Applehead Osi and thinking you might ply her with a heelch of frattery and perhaps a few horns of Steinbeers in the hopes some Borch burlapping after the big turdik, you're not the only one checking out your girlfriend's backside and thinking you can fill her with large quantities of wine and perhaps a few glasses of beer in the hopes that some romance after the big party might happen. You're also harpin, or rather boontling. And bootling is the once secret language created around the 1880s in a small and isolated farming community of Boonville in the Anderson Valley. The parlance is said to contain over 1,000 unique words and phrases. Some say the lingo was used to speak uh, in code in front of outsiders. As longtime time Boonesville resident Bobby Glover once quipped to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, My mother used to say, never trust anybody until you've known them at least 20 years. And even then, be goddamned careful. Others say the manufactured jargon, which contains a good amount of sexual bullshit, was made up so that menfolk could speak plainly in front of the children, and still others say it's possible it's the other way around. Kids trying to have their own special language that the adults wouldn't understand. But linguists agree, Bootling's roots are drawn from a mixture of English, Scottish, Irish, Spanish, Pomo-Indian words, and miscellaneous nonsense. Uh, today, thank Christ, it's a dying language, but there are still visible traces of the vernacular in the town. The payphone is called a Bucky Walters, after Buck, a code name for a nickel, and Walter, the first man in Boonville to own a phone. Jesus Christ. And a cup of coffee is still written on some restaurant menus... As a horn of Zeese, after a man nicknamed ZC who made really fucking bitter coffee. Visit Boonville, uh, where brightliners, aka city folk, are welcome, they claim. I feel like brightliners are not welcome in Boonsville. So I finally have a chance to redeem myself with the pronunciation of this next one. That's Eurona. Fuck you, I learned how to say it. What's up, Juan? Eurona, the Phantom Banshee. In the tree-lined arroyo of Trabuco Creek at O'Neill Regional Park in Orange County, dwells one of the most feared phantoms in all of Mexican legend and lore, La Llorona. And while she is known to haunt many locations throughout Southern California, as well as the rest of the American Southwest, the area of Trabuco Creek is one of her most notorious stomping grounds. La Llorona, a.k.a. the Crier, gets her name from her ghostly, banshee-like shriek. Legend has it she was an evil woman who cheated on her husband and drowned her children because they kept her from getting laid. God then condemned her to walk the earth for all eternity searching for her drowned children. It's said that she steals the souls of living children, and she's often invoked by Mexican mothers to frighten naughty ninos. Tradition also has it that if you see La Llorona, you or someone close to you will die within the week. Seven days. The origin of the legend is unknown, although some believe it dates back to the Aztec times. Many modern Mexican-Americans believe that La Llorona and swear that she still bedevils the living. They say she continues to walk Southern California's hill country at night, her long jet-black hair and black dress blowing in the wind, Uh, an evil counterpart to California's many women-in-white ghost stories. But where her face should be, they whisper, is the head of a horse. See, I always heard that one called the Segua or something. The Tribuco Creek is rumored to be the spot where the wicked woman drowned her children. Little known fact. And on moonlit nights they say you can see her black-clad form bending over the creek bed, her pale arms elbows deep in the water, searching for her lost babies. Good luck, bitch. Okay, this next one is called the Screaming Trees. And they were a Seattle band with a strong cult following. But the band broke up in 1999. uh, And the original Screaming Tree we hear is still going strong in the town of Lakeside. Legend instructs the seeker to drive to the end of a dirt road in Lakeside, an eastern suburb of San Diego. Look for a feedlot and or a slaughterhouse and pull up next to a lone tree in a clearing. 1.7 miles after the end of the paved road, honk three times and the ghost of a murdered girl will scream at the top of her disembodied lungs, replaying the last moments of her life at the foot of the gnarled trunk. There is a picture of this shithole on my Instagram. It's the tree with purple sky behind it. In fact, this does look like the perfect place for murder. Homes are few and far between. The rusting cars share yard space with trash and makeshift lean-tos at most of the roadside dwellings. "'Most well-to-do residents up on the ridgeline "'are surrounded by orchards and fences "'to keep the homeless people out. "'A dry creek bed, uh, "'snakes through the rock-strewn valley "'providing water for the horses and cattle in the springtime, "'and flash floods after a good rain "'to chase out the homeless people. "'An area resident cornered outside the local Circle K "'gave conflicting directions "'and warnings about crazies with shotguns "'and terrible attitudes. "'All the trees are haunted around here,' she said. "'You must be looking for the meth lab.' She claimed to have a great view of the mountainside from her place across the valley and hinted at all sorts of nefarious activities she could see from her backyard. There was no invitation, though. Then she walked on down the road. Local legend or a Scooby-Doo-like cover-up of a redneck meth factory? The answers lie with the intrepid explorer... Or the San Diego Sheriff's Department. The Screaming Tree might be located near the end of Willow Road off Highway 67. It is not. I found it somewhere else, like I said, on Instagram. You can see your own... You can see for yourself the Screaming Tree. You know how much screaming I heard? None. I don't want to say it's debunked, because I was there in the middle of the day like a coward, but I still went. Ha. Alright, this one's a trip. This one, uh, this one probably has a lot to do with why my balls hurt all the time. In the late 1970s, UCLA professor Dan Hirsch heard some of his students that the future site of the Barrington Recreation Center in the Tony, LA suburb of Brentwood was sitting atop a dirty secret. There was talk that the Veterans Administration doctors and staff had been quietly dumping nuclear waste from the hospital into a landfill for almost 20 years. Hearst formed a coalition of students to look into the charges and soon found that the rumors were actually fucking true. They uncovered a paper trail indicating that the VA had indeed used the area as a dump for waste from the Radiation Therapy Program, the Secret Human Experiment Division and perhaps even from a small nuclear reactor. The main concern here is that the radiation could have gotten into the soil, which in turn would have been absorbed into the vegetation, which could have gotten into the water table. Remember, this stuff sticks around for years, hundreds of years, as far as we know, and Hirsch is quoted saying in the book L.A. Exposed by Paul Young that it will stick around for hundreds of years. And this is not the only site in Los Angeles where this has been alleged, and near proven. Santa Susana. Fort George Um, Boron Air Station Just look into them, it's pretty gross What Hirsch and his students didn't count on was the bizarre confrontation with a Brentwood lobby group who absolutely insisted that soccer and baseball fields be built on the radioactive real estate These people, wealthy parents of local kids, didn't believe the stories about the VA dumping bullshit perhaps thinking that some developer had planted them to scare away the competition Yep Yep, totally did. I love making up fucking stories about illegal military dump sites to save on real estate. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a.k.a. the NRC, was called in to investigate. After Scooby-Doo and Mystery Inc. performed an initial sweep of the area with a Geiger counter, the NRC pronounced the area safe-ish. Not satisfied, Hearst was able to secure an... (coughs) I'm just gonna stop and say here your tax dollars hard at work and that the LAPD is honest and straightforward as fuck Not satisfied Hirsch was able to secure an LAPD helicopter from the honest LAPD who is nothing but straightforward and upfront and honest to fly him over the property with an infrared camera which might reveal radioactive hot spots however on the appointed day he arrived, to find that somebody had gone over the area with a bulldozer wiping out any vegetation that would have shown up hot on the infrared pictures. Sounds like he's got a rat in his organization. Hirsch was later told that the timing of the plowing was a mere coincidence and that the fire department had just planned to plow the area for fire control for some time. If the waste is buried more than a few feet underground, the radiation should be well contained and the NRC can be trusted in this case, even though it didn't take the simple and obvious step of obtaining soil samples So if you're a cautious type It might not be a good idea To go to this area The Barrington Recreation Center uh, Or if you do Keep your visit to half an hour or less Or you will experience the Fuck awful radiation poisoning Which, uh, If you've never experienced it It is awful Feel like you're gonna die Probably cause you will I have experienced it firsthand. No, I will not tell you the story, but in late September 1999, somebody filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the NRC to see the secret findings on the Barrington property. However, to read them, you have to go to Rockville, Maryland, where the NRC headquarters and public reading room are located. And you can request the landfill site at 330 South Barrington Avenue, Brentwood, California, permit-slash-license and inspection reports, FOIA-PA99-374 good luck. Fuck that. So, speaking of gross shit, Los Angeles' Hyperion Treatment Plant, as it's officially known, is the second largest complex of its kind in the United States. Chicago is number one. The plant typically processes about 350 million gallons of soupy gray wastewater per day from the nexus of 6,500 miles of a sewer line. Most of it comes from homes and apartments. Treated water is not fit to drink, but it meets the EPA standards, and it is piped five miles offshore and released 190 feet below the ocean surface. So if you remember asking, well, if you've ever wondered why Hawaii water is crystal clear and California water is that murky shade of shit, might be a good starting point. Over the years, some pretty scary shit has been caught in the main intake gates, such as raw sewage flows through the bar screens to prevent larger objects from clogging up the works down the line. A sort of mechanical rake dumps 15 feet into the murky depths to comb objects from the steel bars and then dumps a congealed mass of partially decomposed toilet paper. Ugh. (coughs) gross. Empty pharmaceutical blister packs and other unidentifiable shit into a hopper, which just sits above eye level for easy inspection. It's a disgusting place to visit, and the really weird thing is that people want to see this shit. It's like the weirdos that like to watch pimples getting popped online. I don't understand it. Hyperion offers tours, and people line up regularly to take them. I line up regularly to get kicked in the balls and vomit. That's what I like to do. We asked... Unflappable tour guide, Nancy Carr, what else has turned up, apart from the obvious? We've had bowling balls, 2 by 4s hypodermic needles, and a few... body parts. And she said this cheerfully, and I said, body parts? When that happens by law, unfortunately we have to call the police so they can investigate. She adds that they usually don't ask for the details. Although there is obvious public fascination with what turns up in the sewers, the day-to-day operations of the Hyperion facility are almost interesting. The sterile, solid waste, politely referred to as biosolids, left over from the various bacteriological purification process is used to fertilize a 4,600-acre farm in Kern County, ironically called Green Acres, that was purchased by the city in 2000. Los Angeles bought the farm. I love saying that jokes, car. The land is used to grow barley, alfalfa, corn, and other crops, but calm down. The product is fed to livestock and convicted felons. Ultimately, this means that your beef, chicken, pork are actually recycled, which is pretty goddamn efficient. So what is the legend of Hyperion? Well, all kinds of things are rumored to have shown up in the city's sewer treatment plant from live reptiles. I've heard about the fucking alligators. To fetuses, to mobsters, decapitated heads, but... The mission is to set the record straight, and we have the real list of wacky shit flushed down the toilets, Southern California, uh, in the book LA Exposed by Paul Young, and he reports that staff members admit that they found bags of money, a finger, a mattress, various sex toys, a full set of kitchen cabinets, a complete motorcycle, five-foot grease ball, ew, a fully intact adult male horse. For tours of the Hyperion plant contact public relations at 310-648-5363. What do buns in the oven have to do with an upscale Italian bistro tucked between equally cheeky boutiques on the quiet residential street in this neighborhood when chef-slash-owner Ed Ladau opened, oh, for fuck's sake, chow tea coyote C-A-I-O-T-I Chowdy Pizza Cafe Oh, pronounced Chiyoti Thank you Thank you, book In North Hollywood in 1986 He had no idea that his place would become a hot spot for overdue mothers Lido learned his craft at world-class eateries like Spago Where he almost single-handedly invented the now ubiquitous California pizza using disgusting ingredients like eggplant mixed with barbecued chicken however it was one of his salads that was destined to put coyote uh, on the map You toss this salad old man the restaurant moved to studio city in the late 1990s sometime in 1993 a pregnant woman who was well past her due date stopped by and ordered the romaine and watercress salad with balsamic dressing the next day she went into labor She told an overdue friend what had happened, and the friend came to the restaurant, ordered the same salad, and the same thing happened. I would be very concerned right now. This is a health issue. A local legend and quite a few babies were born as a result. We get pregnant women in here every day, sometimes 20 or more, says one of the waitresses. We don't even have to ask what they want. We just bring it out. That's very sumptuous of you. Although at first... He was a bit miffed that his humble salad was attracting pregnant customers. Ledoux eventually embraced his dubious celebrity. Doctors are reluctant to prescribe the salad as a remedy for shy babies, but some apparently do suggest that their worried parents make a pilgrimage to Coyote. The legendary salad may do nothing more than calm a few nerves and allow nature to take its course, but why knock it? For those looking for a scientific explanation, there is medical evidence that balsamic vinegar causes... Um, uterine contractions but the pizzas there allegedly are very good alright Satanists, kidnappers, ghosts and supposedly a gravity hill this canyon Turnbull Canyon is popular with hikers, mountain bikers, road racers and it hides many a dark secret the chaparral covered mountains with its twisted road light between the suburban sprawl of Whittier on one side and the capitalist paradise of City of Industry on the other. While signs along the trails warn strolling couples and fitness nuts about huge mountain lions and rattlesnakes, the more sinister features of the area known are known only to some unfortunate locals as well as the finer connoisseurs, such as myself, of the weird bullshit. History tells us that like many unhallowed places in North America, the area known as Turnbull Canyon was considered off-limits by the local Indians. It seems that all of California was considered off-limits by the local Indians. They named it. It looks like a Kuna Matata. Hutu Kanagada. Hutu Kanigihana. Hutu... Tuck. Hutu H U T U K N G N A, which supposedly means the dark place. In 1845, the Spanish governor of Alta California deeded most of the land in what is now Whittier to two settlers. First, John Rowland and William Workman, that's a very unfortunate last name, who immigrated from Taos, New Mexico. Their huge 49,000 acre spread included the present site of Turnbull Canyon. Workman was not well liked by the local Indians Yeah, I would have a hard time liking an invader Whose name was Workman Uh, They initially staged constant raids on his property So to protect his family Workman built a tunnel And living space underneath his home Look, when white people start digging into the fucking ground to live Bad shit's happening Manson Starters any conspiracy lizard person nut. Uh, later, when the Indians actually worked for him, they reported seeing ghosts and witches in the suburban passage or the subterranean passage, which ended at the family burial ground. Workman was also involved in a plot to usurp the government, who had originally or the, uh, usurp the governor, who had originally given him his land. And he carried this bad juju to the end of his life. He lost most of his property and money in a failed banking enterprise with his son-in-law, and then he shot himself in the head in 1876. During the Depression years, rumors started that Turnbull Canyon was the site of strange rituals involving a child and baby selling cult. Perhaps like the Finders. Some claim that the area is still used for satanic worship or something equally evil. Uh. I don't know about that. An anonymous source recently reported that an old metal sign far up the canyon was spray-painted with the words, Die Jesus. Take this with a grain of salt. An insane asylum, as with most canyons with ruins in them, was once located somewhere in the now wheat-choked floor of Turnbull Canyon. Allegedly, it flourished in the 1930s, but burned down in the 1940s. Sometime around 1962, a group of teenagers were partying in the ruins, and legend has it that one of the more daring boys was killed by the remains of a long-dormant electroshock device. Now that sounds fucking freaky. Which pumped several thousand volts through his drug-addled brain. I'd pay a nickel to see that show. Fuck it. Witnesses have also experienced ghosts of children, presumably victims of the kidnapping cult, and other figures swinging by the necks from the limbs of of scraggly trees. Although most of the scary shit um, uh, and all the information on the canyon comes from a website of dubious provenance. However, a real tragedy actually did occur, and one that I remember on the road in October of 2002, when a 17-year-old girl was killed and later dragged behind a car for five miles. Awful. A few years later, a local motorcycle officer was killed by a drunk, possibly road-racing driver on the east end of Turnbull Canyon Road. The constant twists and turns are an irresistible lure to fans of a new sport known to the children as drifting, in which the driver attempts to negotiate turns by skidding through them. Thank you, Grandpa, for defining that for me. (sighs) Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm. Some of this is coming from a book, by the way, and uh, the book is a bit dated. The constant twists and turns, yes, uh, skidding through them, the cop was killed on a night detail and was dispatched to nab drifters and degenerates. The location of the Gravity Hill spot is so debated that it's uh, pretty impossible to find. But we wouldn't advise stopping anyway, since you're liable to be rear-ended by a thrill-crazed driver and become yet another tragic ghost that haunts the canyon. Um... I knew somebody that lived near Turnbull Canyon, and I heard stories about this shit all the time. It is a scary place to be if you're by yourself in the middle of the night, and you don't have a gun, and you're not familiar with it. I remember seeing people walking around with hoods on, but not robes, hoodies, like most people do when they're fucking cold. Um, for sure, though, allegedly, there are many devil-worshipping cults in the area, although... It's hard to say if they actually go to Turnbull Canyon. It's all speculation and what have you. I say horseshit. Alright, this one... This is a good one. They promise to tell lies, whole lies, and nothing but the lies. On the first Saturday of April, as near enough to the first of April as weekday workers can get, the town of Borrego Springs, the charming, cool, and agreeable town of Borrego Springs, hosts its annual Peg Lake Smith Liars Contest to honor a man who told one of the most legendary and enduring bullshit stories of all time in California. Tommy Smith was born in 1801 in the Kentucky Hills, and as a young man, he made a name for himself as an explorer, fur trapper, prospector, and Indian slave trader. Real stand-up fucking guy. As a sideline, he also practiced horse thievery. Smith left the lower half or left the lower half of his right leg in Wyoming after an Indian battle, and acquired the nickname by which history now knows him: Peg Leg Smith. Better than, like, Fathead or something, I guess. The horse-stealing business was really going well. But by 1840, the authorities had broken up his squad. And old Pegleg returned to prospecting. We know this much to be guaranteed. It's hard to tell what parts of the next bit of this bullshit are true. Or what part is part of Pegleg's bullshit. His ultimately successful business of lying. During an expedition... To the, uh, charming and scenic and cool in the summer Borrego Badlands in 1836, Smith and a group of trappers from St. Louis had not seen water for four fucking days. The group found themselves crossing the Salton Sink, which is miserable piece of fucking asshole land, trudging westward in a distant range of mountains where they hoped to find a creek or a spring. There aren't any, you're fucked. As events and nerves turned desperate, one of the party was dispatched on a scouting soiree up a nearby canyon. And as he reached the top of the small range of buttes, he found himself surrounded by a field of black metallic rocks. Yet there was a volcano there, dipshit. He nonchalantly picked up a sample and saw a gleam of yellow in the fading light of the sunset. He thought the stuff was copper, but pocketed a few chunks. uh, For the assayer in the next town, just be sure. The following day, in a last-ditch effort, the men found a cool spring at the base of a tall peak, and they finally quenched their thirst. It is fucking hot there. It's not actually a nice, charming place to go. It's 120 degrees. It's fucking miserable. The mountain was named Smith in honor of their fearless leader and guide. When the band arrived in civilization, the blackish rocks were tested and discovered to contain chunks of pure solid gold, why Smith or his party didn't immediately return to the remote buttes is a mystery, but suspiciously, after gold Fever hit the state in 1849 and organized, or he organized an expedition to relocate the amazing find. The group set off from San Francisco, headed towards the southern desert, in a classic episode of Karmic Justice, sometimes during the trip, their Indian guides that they had hired, ran off in the middle of the night, with all their supplies. Yeah, suck it, Smith. Smith was forced to abandon the search and disappeared somewhere near San Bernardino County as best they can figure. He turned up again years later in San Francisco, hobbling along the streets dressed in a beaver skin hat and willing to tell anybody who would listen how to find his fabulous strike in the Borrego Desert. Some of the more gullible parted with cash, and later it took just a couple shots of whiskey to pry it hand-drawn maps and bullshit mining claims out of an aging and alcoholic prospector. Smith died alone in a Bay Area hospital in 1866. Tales of suspiciously wealthy Indians kept the lost peg-leg gold story alive for the lore of the Southwest. And in the 1920s, Hollywood set designer Harry Oliver uh, stated that Leg, er, he started the Peg Leg Smith Club. Each New Year's Eve, Oliver and his group gathered in a spot near Borrego Springs where Smith was said to have started his expedition and held what they called burning parties. Oh god, that sounds bad. Local artist John Hilton would throw his past year's mistakes into the flames. I don't know what that means. Oliver stepped up the fun in 1949 when the first Liars contest was held at the same site. The group erected a monument that still stands today. It's a fucking gross sign at the side of the road that instructs, Let him who seeks peg legs go, add ten rocks to this pile. And the pile grows steadily, probably by about ten rocks, every year. And in recent years, it's reached nearly ten feet. After an interruption of several years, the Liars Contest was renewed by a former newspaperman, Bill Jennings contestants need only sign up to participate and must tell a tale involving Peg Leg Smith or the gold the winner gets the title the greatest oh man that looks like a good word but I don't know how to say it the greatest pre-varicator for one year and they get a trophy miscellaneous baseball bowling or uh, strongman or otherwise harvested from the thrift store Recent tales have featured Smith using a penguin as a compass, a rhino with gold toenails as his traveling companion. Uh, meanwhile, perhaps Pegleg Smith's lost gold still sits on the lone butte somewhere up nearby Coyote Canyon. If you stop, don't forget to open the old mailbox and sign the guest book so that people know that you died up there. Miserable fucking country. Great obsidian out there, though. Now we're going to be on to one of my more, my preferred subjects, and how I, if you will, uh, made my bones as a photographer, or began to make my bones as a photographer. How I started not being embarrassed by the pictures I was taking, and that is uh, by taking pictures of urban sites that are abandoned, unnatural wonders, ancient mysteries. You might think that mysterious artifacts and crumbling temples are found only in the remote parts of the world, and you'd be fucking wrong. They're not only in impenetrable jungles, hostile deserts, or Chernobyl. Or the... any, any country that Turkey fucking occupies. But unexplained structures and cryptic remnants of lost civilizations can sometimes be found in the desert by your own backyard. It seems to be in the middle of the states as far as the, uh... Pacific Southwest and Northwest go. In the middle of California, pretty rough. A lot of weird shit out there. Many archaeologists and historians believe that a large portion of California's history has vanished into the asshole of time. Native American petroglyphs have been found in caves, crevices, and rock shelters throughout the state. Speaking of which, I heard a story that some rangers told me when I was walking around Death Valley about this dipshit doctor who got arrested for grave robbing because he was trying to cut a petroglyph with um, some kind of power saw out of the fucking rock wall that it was painted on so that he could steal it. Guess what a grave robbing charge looks like. He's not a doctor anymore. can tell you that much. Jesus, he was convicted, also. Dumbass. So they, they found petroglyphs in caves, crevices, rock shelters throughout the state, but these, some experts assert, give only a small hint of the civilization and people who wandered our state Back in the dawn of time. In addition to the brief postcards from the past left behind by indigenous cultures, there's evidence that visitors from places as far away as China may have come to the western coast of the continent when it was still a wilderness. These visitors made their journeys long before that ass-clown Christopher Columbus discovered America. It was never lost, brah. And they left behind mysterious reminders of their presence. How did the creators of these puzzling artifacts and the builders of these stone structures get to this land. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? Where did they come from? Where did they go? Where do they come from? Cotton-Eye Joe. And so on. Nobody can say for sure. But these ancient sojourners have given us sites to ponder and cryptic messages to decipher. And many a shiny crystal to sell to a hippie. Examining these lost pages from the book of history opens up an entirely new realm of possibilities just as fascinating as the heritage we thought that we knew. Whether or not you choose to believe that ancient civilizations once inhabited the land we know now as California, one thing is sure. The state we call home has a very, it's been a very weird place for a very long time. Go to Mount Shasta, you'll see what I mean. This one, uh, it's weird, because it looks like what my people are famous for, carved into a rock, and it's called the Maystone. It's a big, huge, striking petroglyph of unknown origin, and it graces a small mountain area called the Maystone County Park in the shithole of Hemet. If you haven't heard Hemet, it's famous for, uh, crystal meth and Scientologists, and I was called a honky there by a gas station worker, so I... Oh, I won't tell you what I said, but it's in Riverside County, of course. Inscribed on a large boulder, the three-foot square figure is a maze formed by four interlocking swastikas. The design is almost unknown among Indian petroglyphs, and archaeologists attribute it to so-called maze culture. When I said my people, I didn't mean fucking Nazis. It's, uh, the maze is the Minotaur from Crete. That's what I mean, my people. We did the fucking maze before anyone else, dude. Uh, the maize culture which left one similar design miles of the south in San Diego That was probably somebody like me 5,000 years ago immigrated from Crete for the fuck of it got there by accident started carving shit into the rocks Just to be funny uh, Other people have other explanations the maize stone has been labeled everything from a 15 thousand year old remnant of the Cascadians thought to be the ancestors of the Mayans to a religious symbol left by the Chinese Buddhist monks at about AD 500 but the latter theory is popular among historians seeking to prove that the Chinese beat Columbus to North America by a thousand years to see this puzzling petroglyph you take highway 74 you go three miles uh, and you should hit California Avenue to Stone Park but there are very strict laws about how you get in there so good luck trying to figure out when they're open because I couldn't do it I know where it is. Didn't see it. So, Bob Maestro ran a scuba equipment shop in Palos Verdes, which is a beautiful beach in California. And one day in 1975, he and his friend Wayne Baldwin were indulging their passion for diving and looking for lobsters and abalone to put on the barbecue. And uh, although the fruits of the sea that day eluded them, their foray off the rocky reefs of the peninsula turned up something that would puzzle and disturb mainstream archaeologists for fucking years. Spotting an unusual round object 35 feet down on the sea bottom or so, Maestro and Baldwin hauled the honking fucking thing up, which turned out to be a 305-pound rock, to the surface. How the fuck? And they carted it back to the shop. The rock was almost perfectly round, with a circular hole bored in the center. In the next few weeks, they searched the area and eventually discovered about 35 more stones of similar appearance. The artifacts soon came to the attention of James Moriarty III, a professor of history and archaeology at the University of San Diego. After five years of research, Moriarty and his associate Larry Pearson concluded that the stones were anchors from an ancient shipwreck. Possibly dating back some 2,000 years, the largest object eventually brought to the surface weighed about half a ton. Wow. Leading the researchers to surmise that the ship it had come from was in excess of 100 feet from stem to stern and may have carried a crew of 50, probably more. The timbers of the ancient wreck had long since been battered to splinters on the treacherous coast of the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Beautiful, beautiful coast. A lot of ships sunk around there, though. Through correspondence with scientists in Southeast Asia, Moriarty Pearson deduced that the sandstone from which the anchors and ballast were fashioned was a type of n- type of sandstone native to southern China. Although historians have begun to take the idea of Chinese explorers more seriously in the last few years, at the time it was uh, academic heresy as well as suicide to suggest that non-Europeans had reached the shores of North America 1,500 years before the Spaniards made their first forays here in the 16th century. Mainstream fake news archaeology masked to protect the status quo by suggesting that the artifacts were merely leftover anchors from immigrant Chinese fishermen of the 19th and 20th centuries. Those Stone Age fishermen of the 20th century. But this explanation from the origin of the stones was refuted since contemporary photographic evidence proved that the Chinese in California chose to employ readily available and much more practical metal anchors, as I would also. But that was not all that was found in the seabed near Palos Verdes. Two column like stones carved with grooves and holes, as well as stone spheres weighing almost a ton with grooves cut all the way around its circumference were also recovered no one could venture a guess as to what these objects were for and whence they came henriette mertz in her book pale ink delved into the ancient chinese legend of the land of feng shui feng fushang i'm sorry fucking freudian slip (laughs) fushang Although other scholars have found fault with her analysis, Mertz translated the old Chinese units of measures into miles and found that the tales of Fusheng placed its location precisely at the coast of California. Reading the stories told by the explorers, she also thought that she recognized the descriptions of Mount, of course, fucking Shasta, as well as the Canyon Grand, which is not in California. The anchors found by the Palos Verdes divers were not the first erratic Chinese artifacts to show up in the United States. A U.S. Geological Survey dredging operation had pulled up a similar object 75 miles off the coast of California. And earlier in the century, ancient Chinese inscriptions and relics have turned up in weird fucking places around the West. Archaic Chinese rock writing had been found in the Nevada Canyon. A peculiar little idol covered with old Chinese characters was unearthed in Granby, Colorado. Two more pieces in a vast, centuries-old Chinese puzzle. For now, the academic battle still rages about Palos Verdes and its artifacts, but the anchor discovery may be the best challenge yet to Orthodox American historians. For years, they have refused to believe that the ancient Europeans and Africans had visited America before AD 1000, despite the Celtic stone, Cairns, Roman coins, and Phoenician urns that keep being discovered on the New England coast. Explain that one to me, huh? the Smithsonian people. Now from America's western shore comes a new affront to the continent's official history. And official is in glaring quotation marks. Some donut-shaped stone tossed into the ocean 2,000 years ago by a Chinaman wrecked on the waveless shores of Palos Verdes. It may take another generation for our school history books to catch up, but it might catch up. Uh... <laughs> So, uh, I like this one a lot because I think I would technically qualify in the time period accurate. Description of what a giant is. I was having this conversation today with a guy at work, actually, about how a lot of the crusaders were probably... Well, okay, a lot of the people in that time period were fucking short. And, uh, I don't mean to disparage anybody based on height, but fucking short to me is a grown man that's under 5'5 five five or so. Not that there's anything wrong with being short. It's just, um, when I imagine a crusader, that's not what I, I picture. I don't picture, you know, a five-foot-tall guy riding a pony. It's Like, I picture somebody probably bigger than me riding a Clydesdale. Just what I imagine. Doesn't make it historically accurate, but that's just what I picture. So, we're talking about how, that the, realistically, the majority of the... This is all conjecture. This is not historically accurate at all, just for what it's worth. Do not quote me on this. Um that a lot of the fucking crusaders were probably just hobbit-sized old fat guys that are swinging the wrong side of the sword at each other and then people like my buddy that I was talking to who's fucking 6'4 and young uh, show up with a sword and just start cleaving people that's how great like Hercules-style warriors are born or Achilles I'm off on a tangent but anyway, Lompoc, Land of the Giants referenced in the Bible's Book of Genesis I'm sorry. The Bible's book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 4, tells us... The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the iniquities of the selfish and tyranny of evil men. No, it does not. It tells us there were giants in the earth in those days. The book that was translated five times in lang- from languages that don't fucking exist anymore, or barely exist... Tells us that in those times, there were giants. So, God damn it, it must be true. Um, I, I don't disparage anything that has some sort of... If it makes you a better person, it works. So, I don't disparage anything that people can become better people and improve themselves with... What I disparage is people that take a book that was written 2,500 years ago, as literal fucking fact. That's my problem. I don't look at. Well, I guess the Greeks actually had documented history at that time, but <clears throat> that's a bad example. It would be like honoring the laws from the eighteen hundreds in my mind, in this country. Anyway, I'm on a tangent again. The soldiers were digging a powder magazine pit in the old Lompoc Rancho one morning when they unearthed a human skeleton. Not unusual, except that this skeleton, lying beneath a layer of cemented gravel, was 12 feet tall. The giant, as they came to call it, had double rows of teeth on its upper and lower jaws and was surrounded by burial offerings, carved shells, huge stone axes, and porphyr rock blocks carved with hieroglyphic type symbols and I am looking at a picture of it and it does not look to be fake. Local Indians heard of the find and panicked. They insisted that the skeleton was an evil omen so authorities anxious to head off the trouble reburied the mammoth remains and the strange bullshit somewhere on the rancho but you can see the pictures online and it does not look like bullshit. Longpok Rancho's behemoth bones weren't unique, though. Giant skeletons surfaced all over America during the 19th and early 20th century. Archaeological mining projects turned them up in record numbers. Excavations at such places, such as Lovelock, Nevada, and the Mound Country in central Minnesota, were said to have yielded dozens of huge remains. Indians in these areas were familiar with the giants and spoke of them with fear and hatred. They said that their descent, distant ancestors were menaced and harassed by these gargantuan humanoids and fought great bloody wars to drive them out of their territory. Virtually, all of the giant remains have been lost or destroyed due to sloppy record-keeping record, record and storage practices of the time, and also the Smithsonian covering it the fuck up, which they are famous for. Virtually... We can't be positive. Someday a spade or an earth mover excavating the hills around Lompoc may again uncover the 12 foot, double jawed confirmation of the fucking 2,000 year old holy book that people still pray to. Used to pray, whatever. I'm sorry, I don't mean to talk shit explicitly about one particular religion. Anyway. Oh man, okay. Speaking of horse shit. On the western edge of Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, not too far from the beach houses of Malibu that recently burned down, lies what one researcher believes may be the most spectacular hidden archaeological site in all of North America, nay, the world. Robert Stanley, a journalist... And publisher of Unicus Magazine has traveled the world in search of ancient mysteries and lost ruins, but he has never suspected that he'd find a remnant of a lost world, literally, nearly, in his own backyard. On the slopes of these chaparral-covered mountains that bisect the Los Angeles Basin, he found what he was looking for, maybe, he thinks. In 1985, Stanley was hiking through the Santa Monica Mountains when he began to notice odd and unnatural-looking formations around the Los Angeles-slash-Ventura County line. Uh Uh-oh, what could it be? He noticed gulches that looked like sculpted ramparts, stone walls on rocky hills never occupied by houses or livestock, and floor-like flat surfaces on the tops of windswept peaks. There was also a huge rock outcropping that resembled the outline of a human face staring out to the Pacific, which Stanley dubbed the Sphinx. The (laughs) Sphinx. The Sphinx. Researching the history and lore of the area, Stanley found a local Chumash Indian legend of a first people who had lived in the mountains long before the Chumash arrived in the 3,000-ish BC range. The Chumash said that these mystery people were long gone, but some of their artifacts crystalline sculptures of strange animals and whatnot could be found in certain mountain caves if you knew where to look. As with the Anasazi ruins of the Southwest, the First People's remnants were avoided by the local Indians like the plague. The Chumash legend was the story of the First People's demise. They claimed the civilization had been called the Moo, and it had been wiped out in a catastrophic flood. This exactly paralleled the legend of the bullshit made-up story of Lemuria, the fake and made-up in the 1800s lost continent in the Pacific. This was the biggest hoax ever as far as the time went, I think. Geologists and oceanographers believe that at the end of the last ice age, the Malibu sea level was at least 200 feet lower than it is today. This would have made Channel Islands a far western extension of the Santa Monica's and allowed for a large lowland region, the bridge of legend, the land bridge, that of Mu, to exist in what's now the California coastal shelf off the Pacific Ocean. The prehistoric people lived in the area, and it's beyond dispute. One of North America's oldest human remains, the 13,000-year-old Channel Islands woman, was found on Santa Rosa Island, 25 miles west of Malibu. That's 13,000 years old. 13,000. Carbon dated, using science to prove it. I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but 13,000. Not 1,300. Add another zero, homeboy. 13,000. Stanley thinks the Moose lowlands were wiped out by the rising post-Ice Age sea levels, making the jerk-off motion with my hand the higher regions of the civilization whose traces, he says, still exist in Santa Monica Mountains, blah, 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 destroyed by a tsunami, fast-moving, powerful tidal wave. Such a wave would have devastated coastal hillside settlements and left countless tons of shit and debris in the wake. Jerk off, jerk off, jerk off. Uh, He believes that the California equivalent of an underwater archaeological site like Japan's Yanaguni, Egypt's Alexandria, or Wisconsin's Rock Lake. Might be here. Stanley has also become an expert on the moose site and has involved both professionals and laypeople in the exploration of the area. Fucking anyone he can talk to at a bus stop, I'm sure, gets suckered into this shit. Fuck, it's fucking it's the Lemurian legend. I'll do. I'll, I got to do an episode on it. It's fucking interesting. It's it's goofy. It's fun, goofy shit. It's someone that, who got conned. Who fucking paid for services in Mexico that he shouldn't have been. Like, historical fact when it's just made up as the guy went. There's some guy named Ice Cream made up this fucking story and sold it to this dopey-ass white guy that believed him. More or less. Uh, the, the, the facts I'm, I'm hazy on, but I'll get them. And I'll do an episode on it. Uh, he's not revealed the exact location of the area's peculiar features, fearing the destruction by vandals or curiosity hunters. I would go just to carve, like, scary faces into the fucking rocks, just to fuck with this guy. Ugh, Lemuria. I'm not ending it on Lemuria. I'm gonna give you at least one more. Fuck the goofy Lemurian supporters of this theory that think they're Lemurian speak in tongues in a far more annoying fashion than Pentecostal Christians do. Um, No disrespect. I don't understand the speaking in tongues thing. However, I've put together... A compilation of Lemurian native speakers, just so that you can be fully informed as to what it sounds like. You're welcome. <laughs> You get the idea. That is ancient Lemurian. Next we have something that I'm probably going to check out on my next day off. Very interesting. You are here to please me. Nothing else on earth matters, says Cecil DeMille to his expectant crew as they sat in the sand, waiting the start of production of his biggest extravaganza to date. The film was to be the first incarnation of the Ten Commandments. Uh, DeMille remade the epic in 1956 with Charlton Heston. The legendary director, with his huge ego, had a massive complex built for the initial part of the story, portraying Hollywood's idea of ancient Egypt, which was staffed entirely with white people. The year was 1923, and the sleepy town of Guadalupe on the central California coast was suddenly neighbor to a bustling metropolis of over 5,000 souls, just a few miles away from the beautiful Napomo Dunes. Thoroughly recommend that place. It's gorgeous. It's fucking hot, but it's gorgeous. The sheer size of the set dwarfed anything produced on the film. DeMille was a stickler for what he considered to be reality, and in the scene he had directed years earlier, he once used real bullets when actors had to shoot their way through a door for a western. He spared no expense for the commandments. Parts of the film were shot in the new two-strip technicolor process to show off the elaborate Pharaoh's Palace, in addition to its skyscraper like height, the palace was 720 feet long and featured an avenue of the Sphinxes. The Sphinxes, with 21 five ton statues lining the royal road. There were also four statues of the Pharaoh, all over 30 feet high, and the city was surrounded by an 80 foot wide, 120 foot high wall covered with hieroglyphics modeled uh, on those unearthed just the year before at King Tut's uh, shack. At the end of production, the director had workers tear down the set and bury the whole fucking thing. Apart from any egocentric issues he may have harbored, DeMille was protecting his creation from interlopers. It was then a common practice for low-budget companies to use the sets that major studios had abandoned. The plaster and wood debris that lay partially buried under the shifting sands for almost 60 years, that is, until... A few film buffs, armed with cryptic information from DeMille's posthumously published autobiography, began to search for the buried city. They found it soon enough, but have been hamstrung since the mid-1980s, lacking the funds to finish the excavation. Uh, Expected help from Hollywood's community has not come to pass, despite an initial $10,000 donation from the Bank of America, one of the original financial bankers, and backers of the film. The dunes shift a few feet every year, alternately revealing and covering up the Sphinx noses and Pharaoh's toes. No fucking shit. Plaster props have the consistency of blue cheese and require a soak with hardening preservative before they can be moved. Coins, bits of costumes, and even an empty bottle of cough medicine favored during prohibition for its high proof have been excavated. The Nature Conservancy has stewardship of the area now called the Guadalupe-Napomo Dunes Complex. Dunes. And they plan to leave the artifacts in place until more money is donated to mount a systematic dig. Ground mapping radar has revealed at least 12 of the Sphinx statues. Fucking cool, man. Some of the plaster pieces are on display in the Dunes Visitor Center on the main drag of Guadalupe. And curiously enough, in the local auto parts and hardware store up the street, where the owner, John Perry, easily slides into his self-roll as self-appointed Civic Booster self-appointed role, rather. His store is homegrown version of the official exhibit, featuring books, other pieces pulled from the sand, and a phalanx of glass cases to hold it all. Perry will give exact directions to the main ruin area, although there's not much to see. The views from the Napomo Dunes nature road give little hint of what lies below the surface, a scattering of lumber and rounded plaster fragments emerging from a massive hill or all that were visible in May of 2005. Cecil B. DeMille's Temple sleeps beneath the shifting sands as it has done for almost three-quarters of a century, waiting for the rebirth of Hollywood bigwigs that have so far failed to provide. Guadalupe is located along Highway 1 in Santa Barbara County, eight miles east of Santa Maria and a hundred Well, wait a minute. Eight miles east of Santa Maria and the 101 freeway. The Napomo Dunes are due west, approximately six miles from the town on West Main Street. Holy shit, I, uh, I went there every year when I was a kid. I didn't realize that's where that was. How weird. And on that charming note of childhood nostalgia and not of Lemurian language education, that is the end of today's episode. Although I feel very good about this one, so I'd probably be doing another one of these haunted and stupid and mysterious travel tours for this summer of California because I had a lot of fun putting this episode together, and the majority of which came from the book titled Weird California by Greg Bishop, Joe Osterley, and Mike Marianacci. Very good book. Thoroughly recommend it. A lot of good shit in there that I had no idea existed. And uh, for the shouts-outs, let's see. Okay, so new people every week or every episode, whenever that comes around, I tend to look at the most influential cities because I can see that on my, uh, my platform that I upload the podcast on. For the last episode, the most influential city, I'll read it out. I'll read out the top ten. Whoever uh, promoted the hardest will get a shout-out. And that is all. All right, last episode. Manchester. In Manchester, thank you very much. You were number one. Immediately followed by Freehold, New Jersey, yet again. Followed by Scottsdale, Arizona, again. Pella, Iowa, Mooresville, Indiana. Brescia, Lombardy, Honolulu, Hawaii, Toronto, Ontario. Thank you all very much. I appreciate each and every one of you. Um, List members and not, I appreciate you all. Please spread the word. If you feel that I deserve five stars, please do not hesitate to do so. It's uh, only helping me out. And please also bear in mind that this has been an almost hour and a half podcast, ad-free, guaranteed, because I value your time. Thank you very much for tuning back in. As always, I can be reached for hate mail and uh, constructive criticism, or not constructive criticism, on Instagram.com slash Duke. Landis17. That's Instagram.com slash D-U-K-E-L-A-N-D-I-S 1-7. I I welcome you to get in touch with me. I always love hearing from you guys, uh, good or bad. I am especially tickled by the bad ones, but I love to hear from the good ones as well. I appreciate you guys all tuning back in, and as always, please do not fail to overlook my open door policy. If there's something you want to hear, just send me a message. I don't give a shit, and I'll do it. If it's within the realm of reason, I'm not going to read Fifty Shades of Grey or anything, but if it's in my genre, I'll do it. Fucking I'm here for you guys, so please, do not hesitate to get in touch. And tell your friends. Continue to tell your friends. I'm kind of sad that Galveston, Texas, dropped off that list. You guys were running number one for weeks. I still appreciate you, though. And on that note, thank you all very much for tuning back in. I will speak to you next time. But until then... Stay spooky.